Good morning. If you would, please open your Bible this morning to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. But before we get to our text, I'd like to uh, refer back to the scripture reading that we read this morning. Psalm 145, <clears throat> looking particularly verses 8 through 13, <clears throat> just by way of introduction. 145, verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all and his mercies are over all his works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord. And your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom. I'm sorry, lost my place. And talk of your power and make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Verse 11, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power and make known to the sons of men your mighty acts. The message this morning that I'd like to consider, have us consider, is regarding the mighty acts of God. And we want to look particularly at Luke chapter 8 and look at a particular mighty act of God. And that is what a sovereign God does when he saves men held captive in spiritual darkness. The passage we want to look at this morning is very familiar to us, I think, for most of us, beginning in verse 26 of Luke chapter 8. We read, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerizines, which is opposite Galilee. And we came, when he came out into the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed by demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house, but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. And yet he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. They were imploring him not to command, not to command them, to go away into the abyss. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding there on the mountain and the demons implored him to prevent them to enter, implored him to permit them to enter the swine and he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, 
they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. And the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they became frightened. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerizims and the surrounding district asked him to leave them, for they were gripped with great fear. And he got into a boat and returned. But the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away saying, return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the truth of your word, so grateful for the working of your spirit and how you set free those who are captive in spiritual darkness. We thank you for the lives represented here, for each of us has a testimony of your work of grace. But if there be someone here who does not know you, who has never been freed from spiritual darkness, we pray for the work of grace in their lives, that they may look unto Jesus. Father, we thank you for your power we thank you for experiencing your mercy, and we just praise and thank you that you are a gracious, merciful, kind, and patient God, and that you bring people to yourself. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, the passage this morning we want to look at regards how a sovereign God reaches down to save men caught in spiritual darkness. In our passage this morning, I'd like to look at four different events in the life of this man that took place and how God worked to save him from the spiritual darkness he was in. By way of context, we are here in the Gospel of Luke. If you look at a timeline, particularly of the life of Christ, you'll find that at this particular time, Christ was about two years into his ministry, two years since he had been baptized by John the Baptist. And as we read here that they sailed into the country of the Gerizines, he is in Galilee. He has been ministering there quite extensively. If you go back into the book of, of Luke and parallel passages, we find that he has finished his Sermon on the Mount. He has had an extensive public ministry, and now he is drawing aside more frequently his disciples to teach them, to instruct them, to train them. He has just completed his parables of the soil and other parables of the kingdom. He has performed many miracles. He has confronted the religious leaders of his day, and the religious leaders have openly, publicly rejected the testimony of the Spirit of God as to who Christ was, accusing Christ of being blasphemous, of casting out demons by the devil, and they have publicly rejected him, rejected his message. And if you flip over just a page or so into Luke chapter 9, 
we find that Jesus recognizes that Jerusalem is before him. Verse 51 of chapter 9 says, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. This is just a matter of a few months away. He will finish one more tour of Galilee, and then he will start setting his face toward Jerusalem. But there is still much work to be done. And in this particular passage, we're going to see not only how God saves this man, but how he uses him. The first event that takes place here in the first two verses, we see an encounter with darkness. It says in verse 26, and they sailed to the country of the Gerizines, which were opposite Galilee. He is not traveling alone. He is traveling with a group of disciples. There are several passages of scripture that indicate that. If you just turn over to the beginning of the eighth chapter, you find that it says soon afterwards, he began going around one city to, and village to another, proclaiming and preaching the kingdom. And the 12 were with him and also some women that had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses. Mary, who was called Mag Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others. And then in a parallel passage in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 and 36, we read that on that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let's go, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd, they took, they took him along with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. So in this encounter with darkness, Jesus is going to a new place with a particular group of people, and he's going to be, by example, training, instructing them, and showing them what it is that he needs to accomplish before his ascension. Just previous to this landing on the, in the country of the Gerizines, we recognize that there has been uh, one of Christ's great miracles that took place, the great storm in which uh, his disciples were concerned, uh, terrified about perishing in this storm. And they wake him and he questions them and says, where is your faith? And he immediately brings the storm still uh, to a calm, the water to a calm. And they marvel. And they say, who then is this, that he commands even the winds and the water, that they should obey him? So you can see at this point in, the, in their mind, there's still some degree of unsettledness, some degree of uncertainty, some lack of faith or a firmness in their belief in who Christ is. But that will change. As they cross over this country and they enter this territory, they come to an area that we see in verse 1, was opposite that of Galilee. This is the land of the Decapolis, the land of the ten cities. The Decapolis was originally part of the kingdom established by Greek immigrants after the conquest of Alexander the Great. They were made up predominantly of these ten cities, one of the ten cities being on the west side of the Jordan River, Crumbing from uh, the Mediterranean Sea, the city of Scythopolis was in the area 
west of the Jordan, and on the east side, the other nine cities that made up the Decapolis. One writer mentions that the Decapolis formed a solid belt of territory along Galilee and Jordan, deeply permeated with Greek influence, but cosmopolitan by reason of commerce, history, and geographical position. Cultural life was a vigorous, cultural life was as vigorous as commercial activity. In fact, it was very Greek by nature. It had many temples, many amphitheaters, Greek art and literature permeated that area. They included athletic games. In fact, another author makes the comment that there on the west, there on the east side of the Jordan River, from the, gen, from the Galilee side, there were farmers of Galilee who could look over there and see a Gentile world. And if you think about it, as someone has mentioned, perhaps this is a good setting for us to understand the parable of the prodigal son. It would not have been too far for that prodigal son, the, the Jew, uh, who rejected his father and went off into a distant country and fed himself among the swine. He could have easily, the, the Jews at that time, as Jesus told that story, could have easily envisioned him going on to these Gentile roads from the east, from the west side of, of the Jordan Valley, crossing over into this largely Gentile world. It would have been a very vivid picture for them and immersing himself uh, in that culture. In verse 2, uh, verse 27, rather the second verse, we see here that this ministry, this work of Christ, it has a very personal nature to it. It says when they, they landed and they came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house, but in the tombs. At this point, it becomes a rather interesting story. If you care to, I would suggest that you keep your finger in Luke 8, maybe put a marker or your bulletin or something in Mark chapter 5. Because what we're going to try to do this morning is look at these parallel passages and put together a more composite picture of what is actually taking place. I think you will find it a real blessing as we compare these uh, parallel accounts of what Christ did in ministering there on the uh, far side of the Lake of Galilee. We'll find, first of all, there's two different approaches to this passage of scripture. Uh, Dr. Luke, the writer of Luke, he is writing from a perspective of his culture, his upbringing, his experience, his education. And Mark, who was a Jew, but writing in Italy, is writing a, a, a gospel that is more geared toward his audience, to a Roman audience. It is very fast-paced. It has, uh, he has very specific purpose and reason for the way he writes. In fact, one of his key features you see there in verse 2 of Mark chapter 5, the word immediately is the favorite term of his. 
and writing a fast-paced gospel, he uses that word immediately more times than any of the other gospel writers put together. So we will see that as we continue in here in the study of this passage. But as I mentioned, it's very personal in nature, and uh, Dr. Luke writes in a very personal kind of way. Luke writes in his accounts in verse 27 of chapter 8, it says he was met by a man from the city. He was possessed with demons. And he goes on to give description for this man that we do not find in the Gospel of Mark. He says, who had not put on any clothing for a long time. He was not living in a house, but in the tombs. Mark, in his style, he says, he came from the tombs. So Mark is focusing more on the issues of this man. Luke is giving us more detail, describing for us a human being. This man had come from the city, probably uh, Ger uh, city of the Gerizines, Gerasa. He had lived in this city. He had lived in a house at one time. But because of the possession of the demons, his life had been just totally turned upside down. And he was driven out from what would have been a normal experience of society. And he was driven out into the, um, into the tombs. In Mark's gospel, he describes for us what his life was like, having become this social outcast. He describes for us what happened. Mark writes, no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart from him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and gnashing himself with stones. It was not Luke's particular point to bring this up at this time. But in the progression of the passage, as we compare them parallel, we find that Mark describes for us the terrible condition of what it was like to live under demon possession. Of course, we understand that these demons were actually fallen angels, angels that had rebelled with Satan. And the scripture makes it clear to us that they are still active in the world. We know that their end, their final end is the lake of fire and the judgment of God. But while we are in this world and while this man was in the world, he had become under this possession, under this influence. Herbert Lockyer in his book, All the Miracles of the Bible, makes this comment about men demon-possessed. He said, it is when men lose control over themselves that evil spirits take the opportunity of effecting an entrance. Moral depravity often precedes demon possession. Men give themselves up to the gratification of the lowest sensual desires of their nature, and they become captives. G. Campbell Morgan mentions that the basic problem, the basic root of this problem is the issue of temptation, often described as the seduction of the flesh, of the eyes, and the pride of life. Morgan says the temptation 
to give way to the evil spirit and the struggle that follows and then the bringing of the man into subjection by the demon results in the entire possession of him, mind, body, and will. It is often difficult, I think, in looking at this passage of Scripture to really understand where the, the man is even existing. Because so thoroughly, so completely has the demon possessed him and controlled him, mind, body, and spirit. That is beyond our understanding, I think, really to, to know what he was, as a man, was knowledgeable of, what he had a memory of, and what he had a part in. But clearly, the demon was in control of him. And he was an outcast. He was living there uh, amongst the tombs. So as we saw in John, or I'm sorry, in Mark chapter 5, the demon had really just destroyed his life. He had become an outcast from society. He had been involved in terrible abuse of, of himself. He was without clothing, facing the elements. He was gnashing uh, or hitting himself with, uh, with stones, uh, making lacerations in his body, uh, probably just emotionally distraught continually. One of the things that um, Mark makes a comment on, he says he was constantly screaming. And that would even continue on in his approaching Jesus, but screaming among the tombs night and day. You can imagine what it is to be so distraught of mind, so out of control, in utter, such utter anguish as to only be left to, to screaming uh, for any sense of, of relief. So here is the encounter uh, with darkness. The second event I'd like to see that takes place here, and again, this is really in a perspective of the disciples with Christ. They are seeing all this taking place. The disciples that have come over with them, the women, the people in the other boats, they have come upon the shore, and there is no mention of them other than that, those introductory phrases, but they are there. They're observing all this. They are taking it in, and so the gospel writers are recording this in a sense, from the perspective of the disciples there with Jesus. So having encountered this, uh, this darkness, there is a second event taking place, and that is the exhibition of authority. The exhibition of authority. In verse 28, it says, But the demons, seeing Jesus... In Mark's account, it says that he saw them at a great distance. He saw them at a distance. And he runs up to Jesus. And he says, what business? Or initially he cries out and he falls before him. And he says in a loud voice, what business do we have to do with thee, Jesus? Mark says he's shouting. He's shouting at Jesus. What business do we have to do with you? Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Here is Jesus coming up from the Sea of Galilee. He's crossing over after the storm onto the western, onto the eastern shores. 
and he encountered this demon. And this demon, this demon-possessed man, sees him at a distance and shouting, runs down and bows before him. Bows before him in recognition of Christ's person. Jesus, son of the most high God. It is not far beyond our imagination to understand that these fallen angels who had existed from the beginning of time, from the beginning of creation, when God created the heavenly beings and Satan, the proud angel, fell and took with him this host, it is not surprising that in the spiritual realm, these demons would have immediate recognition of Christ's person. In fact, as we go back through the Gospel of Mark, we remember that at the temptation of Christ, the devil himself said, address Jesus as the Son of God. And even the angel Gabriel, when he made his announcement to Mary, said, you shall bear the Son, a Son, the Son of the Most High, is what he had called him. And the demons... Recognizing who Jesus is, they come and they bow before him in a loud voice. What business do we have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high? Here's the response by the demon of great dread and great panic. He finishes his statement and he says, I beg you, do not torment me. Same phrases repeated in the gospel of Mark. You see, the, the demons recognize that their time is short. They recognize that we see in the scriptures and various passages in Matthew, Second uh, Peter, they recognize that their time is short. They recognize that Jesus is the great judge. He is the one that will, at the end of time, cast them. Uh, into eternal judgment. In verse 29, in the latter part, this is where we find a distinctive of, uh, of Luke. It says here that Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Now Christ has exhibited just by his very presence and the fact that he is commanding the demon, that he has absolute authority. But there's also an element in this passage that I think Dr. Luke brings out for us, and that is that this demon possession and this releasing of the man and delivering him is all in God's control. Christ is absolute Lord over all the circumstances taking place here. You notice in verse 29, it says that he had commanded him. And back over in, uh, in Mark, he makes the, the same comment. He says, he had been saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. But there's a process going on here, and we're not privy to all the details of that process. 
But Mark gives us, or Luke gives us a clue. It says he had been commanding the unclean spirit to come out of him. But apparently there was a reason that he did not immediately command this man to come out of him. And if you turn over to Mark chapter 9, I think there's an interesting parallel passage here about the purpose of Christ and what he needed, what he needed to do, not only for the sake of the word, uh, the testimony to the disciples, but also for the sake of the individual. In Mark chapter 9, there is an account of a young man who is possessed by a spirit. Uh, he is deaf. He is mute. And in Mark chapter 9, verse 18, it says, And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And then over in verse 26, it says, When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him. Do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he is dead. So here is a young man who is controlled by this demon. He has this unclean, he has this unclean spirit, but yet he's still dwelling at home. His father is testifying to this. He's in a, in a terrible plight, but yet Jesus speaks. The demon throws him into a convulsion, finally comes out. One commentator mentions that the inclusion of this section in Luke 8 and verse 29 indicates that perhaps this demon was so totally controlling the man that had Jesus immediately cast him out, it may have physically destroyed him physically and mentally destroyed him. That is, that is certainly a bit of speculation, but we recognize that this man was so, so much under the control of these demons that he was, uh, he was in a terrible, a terrible plight. But one of the things that we do recognize that the Lord is certainly in control of this situation. He has a divine plan. And he is going to demonstrate to his disciples that he is in control of the situation. He has got his hand in all of the details, whether geographically, physically, regarding the man and his circumstances, he is in control. The next thing the Lord does is he asks a question. He says, what is your name? And he says, we are legion, for many demons had entered him. And they were imploring him not to command them to go away into the abyss. Mark says they were imploring him not to allow them to depart out of the country. It could be, as has been brought out, that the demons there in that pagan culture who had possessed the man, from their perspective, still had work to do. They didn't want to leave that country. They wanted to stay right there in that pagan society where they felt right at home. But Jesus is certainly not going to allow that. 
And Jesus, as he patiently works through this situation, again, two times he used, they use this word implore. They are imploring him. They were begging him. They were asking him not to cast them into the abyss. They are in fear and in dread. And in the patience of the Lord exhibited in these circumstances, there comes this opportunity. And Jesus, it's fascinating, Jesus is completely silent. But both gospel writers mentioned the fact that there was a herd of many swine there on the mountainside. Now, I can't imagine if we stop for just a minute and try to place ourselves there at this point in the narrative. Remember, Jesus and his disciples had come over on the boats. They had come to this uh, rugged territory where the mountains basically come right into the sea. There are tombs built into the sides of these mountains where they bury their dead, and it is there that this man lives. But enter the herdsmen and their herd. And as all this is transpiring, remember back in Mark's gospel, it talks about what a ferocious, fearful thing it was to be in that area and to travel along those roads. But nearby on the mountain, there are the herdsmen. They see these boats come and land at their shores. They see the demon flying down out of the mountain, screaming like a madman. And he falls, they fall, uh, he falls rather, before Jesus. So not only are his disciples watching this and seeing this, but these herdsmen are now becoming a part of this scenario. They're going to be part of the picture and part of God's purpose at the end of the story. So they, they plead with Jesus not to send them into the abyss before the time, and they ask him to send them into the swine instead. It is Mark who gives us the numerical number of the 2,000 pigs. And Jesus, again, being in control, gives them permission. He is exhibiting once again his authority. He gives them permission. It is all part of his divine plan. It is part of what is a teachable moment for these disciples who are witnessing uh, this situation, these events. So Luke goes on and he says, the demons came out of the man and entered the swine and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. So we've seen an encounter with darkness. We've seen the exhibition of authority. And then thirdly, the third event is the examining of the evidence. The examining of the evidence. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, remember, they're, they're seeing this. They know what's going on with this demon-possessed man. They see Christ coming. They see the boats landing. They see the transaction being made. They hear the words cried out by this demon-possessed man. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. Here is a situation where these men are so overcome by what they see 
that however many there were, they just divide and they go in, probably report it to the owners of the herds. They report it to their family members. They go out into the countryside, following the roads branching out there through Decapolis. And it says throughout that country in that area, they're publishing the report. They reported it in the city and out in the country. And so the people respond. The people went out to see what had happened. They came to Jesus. They found the man, the man who had been possessed by these demons. He was sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Mark has an interesting way of putting it here. He uses, well, let me read verse 15 of chapter 5. They came to Jesus and they observed the man. All these people are coming out. They've heard the story. They've lived around there. Remember, this man, Luke says, was a man from the city. His relatives probably were still there. In fact, I know they were. And you will know that in just a minute. His relatives were still there. His old family and his friends were still there. They come out. Mark says, and they find the man, and they observe the man. They're, they know him. They look at him. They used to be friends with him, maybe even some of his, like I said, his relatives. They observe the man who'd been demon-possessed. They remember over there in verse 4 of chapter 5 that he'd been often chained and shackled, that he was screaming among the tombs. No one was able to subdue him. They remember this. They lived it. They saw it. They knew what he had been like. Mark says, they see this man clothed and in his right, sitting down, clothed and in his right mind. And Mark says, the very man who had the legion. Luke doesn't repeat that, but as punctuation, to the situation that they see. Here he is, the one that they knew, demon-possessed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, at peace, at rest. He's clothed. He is, in a sense, taken a step back toward the image of God who had created him. In fact, at this point, this man has been healed. He is well. And he has humbled himself and has believed on the Lord. But it is this very man, Mark says, who had the legion. And so they have come. They have observed the man. And it says in verse 36 of Luke, those who had seen it, that is, the whole incident regarding the casting out of the demons and the permission to go into the swine and the destruction of the, of the herd into the sea. It says in verse 36, though who had seen it reported to them how the man had been made well. They, they gave them, the herdsmen gave them the details. They reported it. In verse 16 of Mark, it says they described to them how it had happened. And as I said before, 
they had been a part of this. They had seen this and they described like you would describe a vivid detail of some experience that was so emotionally or mentally captivating. They described it in detail, the very man. They described how it had happened and what had happened about the swine. But the response of the people, having been given the evidence, reminds us and probably reminded the disciples that were with Jesus of the parable that he had just spoken to them. Back before in Luke chapter 8, early in the chapter, he gives the parable of the soils. And although the evidence was clearly there, the testimony of Christ and his power and his glory and his ability to deliver this man out of his darkness, although all that evidence was before them, like the parable of the soils, they rejected the evidence. In a crowd that size, I could imagine that there were all different kinds of responses. You remember the first three characteristics of the parable of the soils. One falls along the roadside, it's trampled, and the birds ate it up. The other fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away because there was no moisture. Other seeds fell among thorns, and it grew up and was choked out. Evidently, those people, faced with the evidence given to them, fell into all three of those categories because the truth, the evidence, never took root. In verse 37 of Luke chapter 8, it says, And all the people of the country of the Gerizines and the surrounding district asked him to leave. Now, we don't know the circumstances. Were there some there that embraced for a brief moment of time the truth? There may have been. There may have been those where the seed, the evidence and the truth about Christ fell among thorns. And maybe that seed sprouted for a brief moment of time, but then was crowded out. Certainly the destruction of 2,000 sheep, 2,000 swine rather, would have caused some people to say, this guy is no good. We don't like the impact that he has on our economic situation. We're not interested in the impact that he's going to have on our culture or our livelihoods, our society. They rejected Christ. But the fourth event and final event begins at the end of verse 37. Remember, Jesus is silent. All the people come out. The evidence is examined. They reject it and they ask him to leave. The character of Jesus is one of divine love to them. And he got into the boat. 
He said nothing. Jesus got into the boat. He responded to their request, and he was ready to leave. Again, we see the character and love of Christ, his, his patience, his kindness, his mercy. And this was a teachable moment, certainly, for his disciples. If you go back a couple of chapters in the Gospel of Luke, We want to look at two verses here, first of all. Luke chapter 6, verses 35 and 36. This is Luke's abbreviated version of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says in verse 35, Luke 6, But love your enemies, do good. And lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. Where have we heard that phrase? Sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father in heaven is merciful. And then just a couple of verses from the Gospel of Matthew. Gospel of Matthew, verses 21 and 22. I'm sorry, I don't have, I have miswrote this. I'll have to pass on that. I've not recorded the reference correctly. But again, this is a teachable moment for them. He himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. In John MacArthur's commentary on Luke, he has this brief statement. He says, God's grace what we experience here is God's grace in the face of man's rejection. Though they had rejected him, Jesus had not totally rejected them. And that's where the story continues. So Jesus gets into the boat. And as I mentioned, this fourth event is the expanding of the message. Jesus had a purpose in this all along. In verse 38, but the man from whom the demons had gone out was begging him that he might accompany him. But he sent him away saying, return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. One of the beauties of the, the gospel accounts is the harmonization, as I mentioned earlier. That's why I spend so much time going back and forth. Brief sales pitch. If you don't own a harmony of the gospels, 
when you go home this afternoon, buy one. I'd suggest Thomas and Gundry's copy, uh, which is very good. There's a lot of material in it. But you will be blessed by reading a harmony of the Gospels where you have all the scripture passages that are discussing the same scripture passage. You will just be able to see, as I've tried to do this morning, how these bring out so much information, uh, the distinctives of the gospel writers, but also the harmony and the unity that we find in the word of God. It does not contradict. It merely uh, expands our information. There is no contradiction. But the character of the man, the man who uh, had the demons gone out from him, uh, he pleads with him that he might uh, that he might be with him, uh, that he might go with him, that he might travel with one of the disciples, uh, with all of Jesus' disciples, that he might get in the boat and go with Jesus. And that's a perfect picture of what Jesus called discipleship. Except the man deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, he cannot be my disciple. But there was absolutely no doubt that he was a true-hearted disciple of Christ. He knew what Jesus had done. He was aware. And I imagine in that brief time, sitting at Jesus' feet, just like Mary had sat at Jesus' feet, I can see all the other disciples sitting around, talking to him, perhaps explaining, telling them more about Jesus and what they had seen and known of him. But this man wants to go. He wants to be with the, with the Lord Jesus, the one who had saved him. But this is where the, the beauty of the parallel passages come in. If you open your Bibles and look at both Mark 5 and chapter 19 and Luke chapter 8 and verse 39, Jesus gives him his marching orders. Jesus gives him his commission of what he wants him to do. In Mark 5, he says, go home to your, to your people and report. In Luke, he says, return to your house and describe. So there is a progression of thought here. There is a completeness of what Jesus spoke to him. Mark emphasizing one thing, Luke emphasizing the other. He says, return to your house. Mark says, go home to your people. Describe the things God has done for you. Mark says, describe what things the Lord has done and has had mercy on you. And so as an obedient, submissive disciple, he went away and began to proclaim. And notice in Luke, it says, he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city, not just his house, but the whole city. And Mark says, he went out through all Decapolis, proclaiming what great things Jesus had done for him. He was obedient to the Lord's directive as his disciple. But notice also these two passages 
make a great comparison. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus says, tell them what great things God has done. And he went out throughout the whole city and proclaimed what great things Jesus had done. In Mark, it says, the Lord spoke and said, tell them what great things the Lord has done and had mercy on you. And he went out and proclaimed Jesus, all that Jesus had done for him. Someone has written that God's selection of individuals is always for the expansion of his kingdom. And here was Jesus beginning to fulfill a promise made to the Gentiles. Back beginning in the book of Luke, we know that at the Annunciation of the ministry of John and Christ, that there would be a light given to the Gentiles. Back there in, in Matthew, there's a prophecy of Isaiah. It says, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. This Gentile land, this individual really was the first apostle to the Gentiles. He would go forth, preach Christ, and expand the kingdom of God as God had promised in his word. And what was the response of these people? In Mark chapter 5, it says, everyone was amazed. He testified to Christ and what he had done. And the people were amazed. Did they believe? Was there fruit? I'm sure there was. But we won't know the full extent of his ministry until we get to glory. Those verses that we read this morning in Psalm 145, 10 through 12. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts. That's our commission. That is God's purpose for us, to make known unto the sons of men his mighty acts. We live in days of increasing spiritual darkness, but we are still to be God's light. His mission for us has not changed. His authority by his presence and his word is not diminished. Like this man, he providentially places us in the place where he wants us, in the city and in the country and in the region to be a testimony for him. The Lord will providentially bring us into contact with people who are in tremendous difficulties and tremendous needs, even as this age progresses, we know that. And we will need his grace to minister to them because that's what the Lord's, that's what the Lord would do and that's what he calls us to do. We are to seek those that are held captive in spiritual darkness.
Our Lord desires us to be like him. Let's pray. Father, we have so much to be thankful for, for the tremendous power you work in our own lives, for the work that you have done, delivering us from darkness into your marvelous light. Father, we are not able of ourselves, but we know that we have this treasure in vessels of clay, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Please enable us to fulfill your will, to be usable for your namesake.